The reading is James chapter 1, verses 21 through 27. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his face in the, in the mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is God's word. Sunday mornings, we're looking at the book of James, and I've titled the series Real Faith. Because if anybody knew the difference between nominal faith, or the faith you were born in, and then a real vibrant faith, it was James. He grew up in the household with Jesus. He was the half-brother. He knew Mary's story. He knew about a little town of Bethlehem. He, he knew Jesus calling upon his life, and yet the scripture tells us he never believed. Good Jewish boy, I'm sure he knew the scriptures, but something changed in his life, and it changed for all of us, and that was the resurrection. When he came to grips and saw Jesus Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, risen from the dead, he becomes, as we read in verse 1, a bond slave, a doulos, a willing follower, not because it's his half-brother or because it's familiar. He now chooses his faith, and it's vibrant, and it's real. And as James writes about real faith already in chapter 1, we've seen that real faith can take everything this world throws at us, can drive straight through trials and come out the other side, making us better people, not bitter people. Real faith, we saw in chapter 1, um, we understand uh, sins working in our life, the destructive pattern of sin, and we avoid it. And then I don't think it's a coincidence this morning because on our anniversary we're talking about something I'm so passionate about and what this ministry's been built on. If you have real faith, if you are a born-again believer, you have a relationship with something that you never understood before and that's the Word of God that's living and abiding and it's forever. And, and here's what it means. You have a new information system. There's something driving us that was never there before. Here's why. The Apostle John in his letter said, you and I, we were born again, metamorphosis. We were transformed. We were wonderfully remade, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, the word of God that lives and abides forever. Faith came by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when you were spiritually changed, when you were formed, the word of God went into your heart and it's producing 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so now there is a newborn desire, almost like a sixth sense, to consume God's word. It's, it, it nourishes our soul, and we desire it. Paul said before Christ, before that conversion, before faith was real, you and I were led by Satan to do his will. Uh, we, we lived in what's called the futility of our minds, natural thinking, or the carnal nature, which Paul said is opposed to the things of God. Now here's the beautiful thing. We've been changed. We've been transformed. The Bible uses words like the new man and, and being born again. 
And so now every believer has within us this desire to know God and to know him through his word. Jesus, when he was tempted, said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Here's what it means. We are spirit, soul, and body. Our physical body needs nourishment, it needs fuel, it needs food, but so does the spiritual man. The spiritual man needs to be revived, it needs to be fed. Uh, if there's any proof of this, look at our American culture. We are a consumption nation. We consume more than the rest of the world combined. It's unbelievable. You can get anything you want, when you want it, where you want it. It doesn't have to be Vegas or New York anymore. Whatever you want, it's at your fingertips. I was talking to a lady in church, and she was talking about her daughter. Said, hey, Mom, I need $20. There's nothing to eat in the house, right? Don't you parents love that? There's nothing to eat in the house. Um, she's like, $20? I gave you $20 yesterday. What do you need $20 for? You know what her daughter was getting her food? On Uber Eats. Anybody know that what that is? Yeah, like you can order a cheesesteak at Pat's, like you should, not Geno's. And an Uber driver will pick it up and deliver it to you anytime you want. This is unbelievable. Now, here's the proof. We can feed ourselves. We have more than enough. But Time Magazine said it's not working. This is their headline, we are Prozac Nation. Sociologists are telling us that emptiness, loneliness are at all time high, and the greatest destinations, like when you open a magazine, you see a picture of Hawaii, has some of the highest suicide rates in the world. And so what we're finding is, man doesn't live by bread alone. There, there is something at a soulish level that needs to be satisfied. That's why people go to mediums, psychiatrists, they dabble in Eastern thought, gurus. Uh, the self-help section in the bookstore is still one of the larger sections. The Apostle Peter, Peter nailed it in John 6. When everyone left Jesus, all his followers, because he said, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. It's getting real, guys. And he looked at the 12 and he said, are you guys leaving too? And Peter said, no, only you have the words of eternal life. Only you bring soul satisfaction. Only you have these words where we never thirst and we never hunger again. Now, Jesus used another cryptic analogy using food when he ministered to the woman of Samaria by a well. Uh, the apostles weren't there. They were out buying food, as they should have, right? They, they were the custodians of the ministry. Jesus meets this woman who on a soulish level is empty inside. She's had five husbands. She's living with a guy. And Jesus sets her free and sets her on the right course. The guys come back and say, hey, are you hungry? And Jesus is like, no, I got food you don't know about. And uh, what he was saying is his food was to do the will of the one who sent him. So listen, guys, the word of God isn't just for consumption. It's for doing. That's what James is arguing for, to be doers of the word. In other words, we find our instruction in God's word and then we begin to walk in the light of it and we find out why God made us and what life's all about. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, James uses the word wholeness, which I said is feeling right in your own skin. Life just makes sense for the first time. So I want to ask you at the outset of this message, what is your relationship to God's word? Do you hunger for it? Do you desire it? Are you like David who said, oh Lord, your words are better than life? Or let's be honest, is it dry, boring, and sometimes something you have to do or something you have to endure? The reason I wanted to start with this question 
is not to condemn you or beat you down, not to put you on a performance track, but I want you to fall in love with the scriptures. That's all I want you to do. My life verse is Joshua 1.8. Do not let this book of the law depart from you, but meditate in it day and night and you will have great success. 35 years later, God has proven that out in my life. If you think I walk around this church wondering if it's another life, you should see my own personal life. I look in the rearview mirror at all that God has done and he's been so faithful. And I might not be a success according to the world standards and I'm certainly not trying to beat out other Christians, but I'm trying to do what Paul said. I'm trying to run my course and, and, and the road God set out for me. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, one day. So I want you to fall in love with the scriptures. Verse 21 says the first step is lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the imparted word. It can save your souls. Now, it doesn't mean get your life right and then start reading the Bible. It's in the aorist Greek tense, which means having laid aside or continually laying aside. In other words, a conversion, the old man was disengaged, so we are in a process of renewal. We are in a process of putting away, right? Paul said, put off the old garments, put on the new. Having done that, he's, he's telling us to stay in the word, be doers of the word, and receive with meekness the implanted word. How do you receive with meekness God's word? Two ways. The word meekness means humility. It means to have a teachable spirit, to be patient and childlike. Not a big shot, not ambitious, not a know-it-all. You know, to humbly take instruction from the word of God two ways. The first way is what we're doing right now. We've all gathered together as the church has done for 2,000 years. We sing a little, we fellowship a little, and we sit under God's word. Um, in the book of Acts, it doesn't take long till you realize preaching's a pretty big deal. In the book of Acts, whether they met in small groups or large groups, they, they broke bread, they took communion, they fellowshiped, they did many things, but they listened to the apostles' doctrine. 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 15, Ephesians 4 tell us there are gifted ministers who are able to teach us. Ephesians 4 talks about the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Now, I'm a pastor teacher. That's why we bring in guest speakers, by the way. We, we want you to hear the evangelist. We want you to hear the apostle. We want you to hear people with other gifts so you'll be well-rounded and you can do the work of the ministry. Teaching is a paramount gift. It's like the muscles of the church. Now somebody might say, well, Pastor Bob, yeah, that sounds good, but can't I just sit on a park bench and open my Bible or lay on a beach and open my Bible? Yes, you can and you should, and that'll be the second way you receive the word, but let's stick to what we're doing right now. Let's talk about the beauty of community. Uh, because you're the product of the U.S. and the West, you're, you're independent. You're the Marlboro man, as I've talked about before, right? It's all about you, right? You know, you read the Bible for yourself. It's all, you know, Eastern thought was there is a large community that's come before me and there's a large community coming after me and I stand on the shoulders of those who were great before me. Last week I was in Florida at Ravi Zacharias Founders Conference. A generous couple in the church invited us. We got to spend time with them and 
I, I just marveled. It was uh, Robbie's 35th conference, and I remember reading his first book. I was a Christian for about six months and have read and listened to almost everything he's written or spoke about. Robbie's 71 now. Just got back from six weeks in Asia, flew to, spoke to the UN, flew down to Atlanta um, to go to his granddaughter's birthday, slept in his own bed, came to this conference and is off for three weeks in India. He's 71 years old. In the same hotel, R.C. Sproul, who's 81, was having his Founders Week. And I sat there thinking of all the men of God who I have sat under for 35 years. And I was just grateful. These giants of the faith who have rightly divided the word of truth. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, you have many teachers, but you don't have many fathers in the faith. And so we stand on the shoulders of these great men. And they have kind of paved the way for us. In Acts chapter 8, there's a familiar scene where Philip is told by the Holy Spirit to overtake a very large retinue, a caravan that's going from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. They have been there for the Passover. And Philip uh, overtakes the chariot, and there's a eunuch there who, by chance, is reading Isaiah 53. There's no 53 at the time, but he's reading Isaiah 53. And it's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? Listen to what he says. How can I unless somebody instruct me? The Bible is a big book. It has literature, it has parallelism, it has wisdom, it has history. And therefore, we need people who have come before us who, and, and, and now who can rightly divide the word of truth and teach us God's ways. Now, if you come to this church, I will be your primary Bible teacher. So let me tell you how we teach at Calvary Chapel. Uh, Wednesday night, we have classes and we have verse by verse. We go deeper in the Bible. Sunday mornings, what we're doing right now uh, is when the family is gathered, we are teaching through the Bible. We're teaching through books of the Bible. And I think most of you don't realize this, we're doing it in order. Somebody came up to me at the end of Hebrews and said, where are we going next? I said, uh, what's next in the Bible? They're like, James. I said, well, that's where we're going. All the way to Revelation, and we'll go back to Genesis and start all over again. If you come here 10 years, we will take you through what Paul said was the whole counsel of the Word of God. Now, every once in a while, I'll do a series like we did on the family, or if we're too long in the letters of the New Testament, I'll do a gospel, because I think we need to see Jesus. Uh, if we're too long in the New Testament, I'll jump back to the Old Testament. But by and large, we're moving through the Bible. Well, what's a Sunday morning look like? Well, again, if it's all about you, we would do what you desire, okay? But that's not what Sunday morning's about. This is from Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary. Borrowed these from a lady in the cafe, by the way. <laughs> Sunday morning is not a seminary class. Though you are expounding the text, do not lose sight of the fact that you may have new believers, non-Christians, and a host of other people to minister. Again, it's not all about us. Take it easy. Make sure the expounding does not go over the heads of those gathered. Remember the adage, teach scripture simple and keep Christ at the center. Though you have taken great care in studying the passage, you must remember Sunday morning is not a time to show off your intellectual prowess, but to clearly and simply deliver God's word to the people. Chuck used to say, simply teach the word of God. Simply. 
In the last 10 years of Chuck's life, he would teach on one verse. One chapter, one verse, and he would expound upon it. John Corson, who a lot of people think is the best teacher in Calvary, uh, probably put it the best way I've ever heard. He said, on Sunday morning, we need milk for those who are new. We need a morsel of meat. You're not getting prime rib. Come Wednesday night, we're in Isaiah. We need, we need a morsel of meat for those who are older saints. And we need manna for everybody. So on Friday, when I close my Bible and put my notes in it, you know what my prayer is? God, I know this text. I've studied it. I've read 15 commentaries. But God, what are you speaking to Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, this Sunday? And that's my prayer. Word of God, speak. Pour down like rain that we might hear. Uh, gifted teachers aren't only in this pulpit. You know there's a whole floor below us. There's a floor below us with 300 kids, and there's middle schoolers and high schoolers upstairs. Some of our greatest teachers in this church uh, are on other levels. And if you think that's not important, if you think it's just babysitting, I could tell you stories of people whose lives were changed by their Sunday school teachers. Uh, once in a while, we go to the Bowery Mission in New York City. At the turn of the last century, it was one of the greatest missions um, in the country, it was started by Charles Spurgeon's brother. Uh, now it's been gentrified, it's in the area of Soho. Well, but back in the day, they used to minister to thousands a day, literally, uh, because life was hard, especially through the Depression. Well, I was there one time, and we were going to do their service, so I was sitting with their director, who's 72 years old. And I said, sir, tell me how you came to be the director. He said, Pastor Bob, I was riding the subway one day, I was on cocaine, I was hungry, and I got off at this stop, and I saw people online, found out there was a meal. And the way they work it is you sit through the chapel, and then they feed you. And he said, well, I sat through the chapel, didn't hear a word of the worship, didn't hear one word the preacher said. But I looked on a wall, and I saw a picture of Jesus, and I saw an inscription, and it was a portion of Scripture, and I flashed back to my Sunday school class and a Sunday school teacher and I gave my heart to Christ, and five years later, I was the director of this mission. The word of God does not return void. When that seed of the gospel is sown in someone's heart, it will produce 30, 60, and 100-fold. We know from archaeology, they found seeds that are thousands of years old, and if you plant them, they'll grow. So teaching and preaching, very important. The second thing, or the second way you receive the word of God is by becoming a self Feeder. Here's where it's going to get quiet in this Presbyterian church. My grandson's going to be one this month. And he's gone from being spoon-fed to feeding himself. Now, he doesn't use a fork. You know, you cut everything up and he throws one, eats one. You know the drill, right? Uh, when I had kids, we cut up hot dogs. Now he gets, like, gluten-free whatever, you know. But he's becoming a self-feeder. He doesn't need mom anymore, Right? If you and I are really going to grow and our souls are going to be enriched, we've got to become self-feeders. Verse 25 says, the man that continues in the word of God will be blessed in all that he does. The idea is he'll be successful. Psalm 1 and other parts of the Bible talk about meditating in God's word day and night. Podcasts are great, reading great books are great, church is great. But unless you have a way to self-feed, you're going to be in trouble. 
Too many of God's people are anemic when it comes to self-feeding, and when trials come, they fall apart. Mother Teresa said, if you're going to keep the light burning, you've got to add oil over and over again. So I want to give you some tools this morning, some practical steps to self-feeding. This is what made Calvary Chapel irresistible since the 60s, is that the people that attended were self-feeders. Um, the first thing you all need to do is purchase a Bible, Okay? Now, I know you all have Bible on your phone and you have computer Bibles. I'm not against it. I think they're wonderful. But they just put it in a new format called a book. It's really cool. You should try it. Um, you don't have to charge it. It comes in different colors, shapes, and sizes. Uh, you can put things in it like your notes or handouts we give you. Uh, I remember you talk about anniversary. when want to hear a blooper. I was uh, preaching one time and back in the day where we lived week to week and uh, my income tax return was like 200 bucks but that was like $2,000 to me and every time I would get my income tax return my wife would say give it to me because I know you're going to lose it and she was right uh, I had lost it I couldn't find it for at least six weeks and I remember standing here and I was teaching and I went to make a point and a paper fell out and I thought it was my notes and I bent down and it was my income tax return so the, the Bible is life-giving. It, it can hold things for you. Here's another thing. It smells good. You ever smell a new Bible? When I was a new Christian, I used to go to bookstores and just smell new Bibles. I'm like, this is what heaven's going to be like. Uh, this is going to be heaven's smell, this Bible. It's wonderful. Now, I'm being facetious. I have 18 Bibles. And the reason I have 18 is they have study Bibles now, and you know, Jerusalem Bibles and archaeology Bibles, and they're all tools for me, but this is mine. You take this away from me, I'm in big trouble. This is a part of my hand. And uh, I'm pretty sure of this. If, if you, all you use is your phone, you're in trouble. Here's how I know. When I come to church or when I go to a church or I go to a conference, I don't have my phone. My phone's in my office right now. Um, I turn it off if I'm at a conference. Do you know why? The few times where I thought, let me take notes on my phone, you know what I'm doing within three minutes? Checking email, looking at texts, fantasy football apps, right? So here you are listening to the word of God, this is good, this is life-changing, and then you get like a nasty email and all of a sudden your life is going, I mean, everybody needs a real Bible. Second thing you need to do is form a habit. 30 days makes a habit. I think one of the reasons why you don't have a habit of being a self-feeder is you're choosing quantity over quality. Somewhere along the way, someone told you, if you just read the Bible through in a year, or if you get this big quantity, you'll be accomplishing something. Uh, there's two mistakes we make in Bible reading. One, we read for information. Now, the information is wonderful. You can read about history, and you can go back and look at the history of Israel. That, that's all fine, and it's good. Uh, but the Pharisees read for knowledge. And you know how they turned out. Paul said knowledge puffs up, love edifies. The second problem is to read for formulas. Six steps to financial health, six steps to a better business. I mean, do you ever notice there's no lists in the Bible? Proverbs about as close as you get. Otherwise, you're reading a very relational book. Here's why you're reading. To discover the author. 
John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and we beheld his glory, the only one full of grace and truth. It's a person. We're getting to know the author. One of the ways God has given us to know the author is through the word of God. And to form a habit, here's what you need to do. You need to pick a time, whether it's early or late. You need to pick a place, and you need to slow down. That's why we sang, be still my soul. You need to quiet yourself. You need to eradicate hurry so you can hear God's voice. 1,500 times in Scripture, the word of God is tied to listening. It's very important. From all my study of the Bible, I have found no positive correlation between the quantity of Bible read and the quality of insight gained. In fact, what I have found is I start reading the Bible and within four verses I stop and I'm just pondering and listening. You're not going to get any brownie points or any gold stars for reading more quantity. Now, a lot of people think, oh, here's what I'll do. It's January. I'll get the one-year Bible. It's all chunked out for me. And at the end, I'll finish. Ta-da. The problem is some of you need a two-year Bible, three-year Bible. One year is not enough. So you're reading it to come in and engage the author. Uh, the other thing that might help you is to get a companion a book that explains the Bible. Uh, Gordon Fee's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth is probably the standard. Uh, when we were in Rome, my Roman guide, she was a woman, was very open to uh, our ways. She was Catholic. And, and in Rome, when you go to see the statue of David in Florence, uh, I know when you make the left to go into the museum, to the right, there is a full-fledged Christian bookstore, which is really rare in Rome. It's evangelical. And I walked in, and Gordon Fee's book was there in Italian. And I got her a Tim Keller book and, and whatever. But Gordon Fee's book is, again, The Standard Bearer, um, Howard Hendricks, Richard Foster, Life with God, Reading the Bible for Translation. These are books that will explain and chunk out the Bible for you so that when you read it, you'll understand. Um, when you choose a Bible, I've written a pamphlet, it's probably out now because of the first service, on how to choose a Bible, how to choose a translation, how to choose a size. Study Bibles will give you notes on historical background, things of that nature. The fourth practical thing you can try is try reading with your heart. Let me explain this. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm. Uh, I think on your notes today, we gave you part of that psalm. But read that psalm and notice how relational David is with the word of God, almost like it's a person. Uh, so reading with your heart, what does that mean? Pick a text. Uh, psalm 8, right? Lord, when I consider your heavens, the moon, the sun, the stars, what you've created, what is man, you're mindful of them. So you read that text, and then you reflect or meditate on it. Meditation is not an Eastern idea, it is scriptural. Psalm 1, he who meditates, it's a Hebrew word that means to ruminate, to mumble, to actually say it over and over again. And so you can actually reflect or meditate or listen. What is the word of God saying to you as you're reading it? Uh, you can pray the text. Lord, give me the passion David had. Lord, let me see you in all of creation. Uh, there is a fallen condition focus in every part of the Bible. What does that mean? There, there's something about our broken nature in every text of Scripture that when we read it, it writes us. Does that make sense? And so you can pray, Lord, uh, what does this mean to me? And then obey the text. Lord, how can I put this in practice 
today? How can I be a doer of the word? James says that we don't want to be like a man who observes ourselves, natural face in a mirror, where he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets the man he was. That's not what we want to do. Now, he calls it the perfect law of liberty, and he uses the illustration of a mirror. Now, they didn't have mirrors in that day. Uh, what they had was, if they were poor, they had a piece of bronze. If they were richer, they had uh, silver or gold. And they would find the sun, and they could barely see a reflection of who they were. Um, today, we have mirrors where we can see, like, the pores in our skin, right? So today, when you look at a mirror, and if you're getting older like me, it's like, oh, my gosh. It's the first thing you see in the morning. Like, what am I becoming, Right? But then you walk away and you forget, right? Until you see another picture, it's like, oh gosh, right? So James says, we don't want to be like the man who observes and doesn't do anything. We want the word of God to write us. And we're never going to be perfect, but we want to be able to change. Now, will God speak every time? No. I think I gave you that illustration before. Uh, you guys that go fishing, the fish don't jump in the boat, Okay. Um, God wants to be sought. God said, I'm, am I a God that's near and not far away? So it's this continual daily bread as we engage with God. He begins to speak, we begin to act, and our soul is satisfied. Richard Foster said, the Bible is not a tool for sharpening our religious competence, but a living and active sword for cleaving our double-minded thoughts and motives, exposing and transforming the contents of our heart. The best guard against any handling of the scripture that leaves our souls untouched, that was the Pharisees, and ourselves unchanged is surrender to the cleansing, forming flow of the Holy Spirit. Simply this means opening our whole selves, mind, body, spirit, thoughts, behavior, and the will to the open page before us. We seek far more than familiarity with the text alone. Instead, we are focusing our attention through and beyond the text to the God whose reality fills its depths. Uh, I am terrible at Bible games, okay? Bible trivia or Bible pursuit or whatever. I am lousy at that. I don't care who the seven sons of Sceva were or I don't care uh, who the four daughters of this person were. It's meaningless to me. I could care less. What I do care about is getting to know the God that saved me and understanding his faithfulness. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. And understanding that how he dealt with Israel, he's going to deal with me. These are the things I'm interested in plumbing. Not trivia, not religious arguments. This is what real faith is all about. This is what James is getting at. James understood the word of God. And he calls it the perfect law of liberty. It's funny, the word law and liberty are put there. and we, we never think of the law as liberating, right? But it was. The law liberated Israel in ways we'll never understand. So Richard Dawkins says when you look at God sacrificing or God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, we're looking at a God who's out of his mind, who desires child sacrifice, and we should abhor the Bible for that. But you know what God was really doing? He said, Abraham... I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to sacrifice your son so you can see the insanity of these pagan nations who will throw babies on an altar because they think the gods are angry. 
And Abraham, I want you to know that's not the God I am. Because an angel stopped him and, and God said, you know what I'll do, Abraham? I'll provide myself. I'll come in the flesh. And I'll provide substitutionary atonement that you would never go through this. And God spared the Jewish people from idols. He spared them from all the atrocities that we see among the nations. This is what human rights and human civilization were built on, the perfect law of liberty that gave the Jews and now gives us freedom. The word of God turns selfish people into generous people, fearful people into courageous people, and hating people into loving people. One day Jesus was put on the stump Rabbi, what's the greatest command? The Pharisees prided themselves in mastering the Bible, and now they want, you know, give us another peg in our belt. Come on, we need more knowledge. You say, you need more knowledge? He goes, I'll give you what you want. How about if we reduce your whole Old Testament to two laws? Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you want to prove you know the word of God? Love. When we used to have bulletins here at Calvary, they used to say we worship in song, we worship in the word, we fellowship, we worship in our giving, and it says, and we look to his agape love in our lives as proof that we've been worshiping him. James, we're told through church history, was called old camel knees. He prayed so much for the church, his knees were, were calloused. He, along with John, were the pillars in the Jerusalem church. Legend tells us that John, at 90 years old, would be carried to church on Sunday in Jerusalem, and he had one word, this last living apostle for the congregation. You know what it was? Love one another. Love one another. To the degree you're engaged with the word of God should make you a more loving person. Paul said knowledge puffs up, love edifies. The Pharisees had read their Bibles all their lives, had no real faith. They never encountered the one it was written about. Jesus said, lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me. And he said, you search the scriptures thinking in them you have eternal life, but they point to me. Jesus said, if my words abide in you, you will know and bear much fruit. Guys, can I say it this way? God didn't give us a Bible so we would master it. He didn't give us a Bible so we would figure it all out, right? He didn't, he didn't want us to figure out you know, how does salvation work and, and what are the five points of this and the five points of that. Instead, he gave us the Bible so we could live it and eat the fruit thereof and listen so it would master us. That's why he gave us the Bible. And we're one of the few generations that has it on our laps. Only from about the 1500s on have people actually had Bibles. And it's a beautiful thing. One more time, Richard Foster said, reading the Bible for interior transformation, interior transformation is far different endeavor than reading the Bible for historical knowledge. Literary appreciation or religious instruction. In the latter case, we learn head knowledge in the former heart knowledge. To allow the Bible to infiltrate us with the life God offers. It's only the life God offers. You don't get it automatically. Piercing us like a two-edged sword, dividing soul from spirit, joint from marrow, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12, we must bring the Bible 
to the Bible our whole selves expectantly, attentively, and humbly. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? And so we all have this invitation to feed upon the word of life, to fill our souls, and to let God flow out of us the things that he wants us to do to find our calling and to find our way. Now, we've got to look at the last verse because it opens up a world of controversy and everybody likes a controversy. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, I'm, I'm reading this verse because it ties into next week where James' famous statement, the banner over James, is faith without works is dead. Now, because he wrote that, this caused the first epistle to be written to become the last one in the canon, and it infuriated Martin Luther. He hated the book of James for that. Uh, mainly because we who understand grace understand it's not about earning, and now he says faith without works is dead. Let's put that aside just for one minute. The reason why verse 27 is very important is because many Christians over the centuries have had a form of Bible reading I call pick-and-choose Bible exposition. Pick what you like and discard the rest. So I think it was W.C. Fields who said he, likes the, he liked the Bible, he just didn't like the verses. Um, so let me ask you a question. In the last 35 years of evangelical Christianity, what is the church majored on in its preaching? The first part of that verse or the last part? Have we measured on helping marginalized people, those who have less than we do, or have we majored on keeping ourselves unspotted from the world? Keeping ourselves unspotted from the world, right? That's the majority of the preaching, right? You know, don't do this, don't do that, you shouldn't do this. Uh, real Christians don't do that. We have far majored on that and have talked very little about how helping people that were marginalized. And yet Jesus in his demonstration talked more about the Samaritans being the heroes of his story than anybody else. So we don't want to be those who pick and choose. That's why we teach through the Bible. We can't hobby horse around the verses we like. We have to touch all topics. And James says, when you have real faith, you have a desire to stay clean before God and a desire to help those in need. David was the man after God's own heart. Committed adultery, murder, a year-long cover-up, and maybe his greatest sin was numbering the tribes. And people come to me, especially women, and say, how's he the man after God's own heart? Never turned to idols. And if you read Psalm 119, his words are amazing. Your words, God, are greater than life. He, he was so intimate in the knowledge of who God was. Look, there's no such thing as sinless perfection. We're, we're, we're all going to stumble. A righteous man falls seven days. It's not about any of that. It's about knowing the author and the one who made us. Um, maybe you don't understand the Bible because you don't have real faith. Maybe there was never a time in your life where you gave your life to Christ. 
And you could do that this morning. There's pastors and elders up here. You could pray a prayer. You could do it in your car. You could do it in the cafe. You could do it at home. But, but a real encounter with Jesus Christ will open up the scriptures. For those of you where Bible reading has become dry or, or, or a ritual, um, you need to change things around. And you need to get back involved with God and let him speak and, and, and let the word of God. You know, Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll and that it was bitter to the taste, but it was sweet going down. Today we live in a culture where people want the sweet first. But only God has the words of eternal life. And God has given us wonderful things. We sing and we laugh and we have fellowship. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, if you come to St. Thomas Square at noon, uh, you'll see all the pigeons there. He said, they haven't come for the ringing of the bell tower. They haven't come because of the music. They've come because of the crumbs that the lunch people have left behind. The bread of life. Our sustenance is God's word.